Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm speaking with Jared Dillian. Jared has lived a very fascinating life, served in the Coast Guard, worked as a trader at Lehman Brothers. He's a writer of the Daily Dirtnap newsletter. He's also a DJ and a prolific author. He's written Street Freak, an account of his time at Lehman Brothers, a novel, All the Evil of This World. He's also written a collection of essays, Those Bastards, in reference to a quote from Dick Fold, the CEO of Lehman. It's a book I highly recommend. I just finished it and made me think about a lot of different topics and made me laugh. He has an upcoming book, which we'll also discuss, No Worries, How to Live a Stress-Free Financial Life. Welcome to the podcast, Jared. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So first question I always ask everybody, what made you catch the bug? What got you into finance and investing? I was 23 years old. I was in the Coast Guard. I was living in Port Angeles, Washington. There was a used bookstore in town. I was a really big reader at the time, and I was mostly buying literary journals and reading short stories and stuff like that. And I called up my mom. I was all excited one day. I'm like, mom, I'm going to get an MFA and write short stories for a living. I'm going to be a professor and I'm going to be a writer. And she said, that's a horrendous idea. Like, you should not do that. <laughs> she said, you should make some money first and then do that. So I took her advice and I went back to the bookstore. They had a small finance section. The first book I bought was a random walk down Wall Street, Burton Malkiel. Yeah. And I read it. And it was funny because, you know, I was a math major. I was pretty well-versed in quantitative stuff. And I said, this guy is so full of shit and I don't know why. Like, <laughs> he's just so incredibly full of shit. So I was like, markets can't be efficient. This is not true. Then I got really interested. Then I read all the books in the bookstore. And then I applied to business school. I got into the MBA program at University of San Francisco. And from there, I got a job on the floor of the Pecoast Options Exchange. And from there, I got a job at Lehman Brothers, and the rest is history. So awesome. So, where do you stand on Burton Malkiel now? No, after all these years, he's later? still terrible. No the, the, <laughs> no, the market is not efficient at all. It was funny. I was giving a presentation to some Carnegie Mellon students. This was like six or seven years ago. And I gave them a series of four charts, and two of them were randomly generated, they were random walk charts. And two of them were actual charts. I said to the class, I was like, okay, two of these charts are real. Two of them are fake. Which ones are fake? And they were all able to pick them out. They were all mm -hmm. able to pick out the real charts. And I was like, this should not be possible if markets were efficient, right? What is different about these charts that makes them easy to spot is real charts. And it was because they trended. I should show you the presentation after we're done. So just little stuff like that. That's interesting. Yeah. And I know one of the examples he has in the book is the chart of the coin flips. He says that looks just like normal stock chart. So no, it doesn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, so I guess, are you more of a trend guy? Do you think that's kind of one of the most important things to consider in an investment? Well, I'm actually not. I'm more of a mean reversion guy. That's generally my style. But I think you have to be both at different times. 
I think there's times when it's profitable to be mean reverting. And I think there's times when it's profitable to be trend following. You kind of have to know which is which. So I'm a sentiment investor, as you probably know from following me on Twitter. Mm -hmm. I tend to enter trades when sentiment is at extreme levels, which means I'm usually doing mean reversion stuff. So you've seen the stuff that I've posted. So, you know, mm -hmm. that. yeah. So I know one of your things that you've written about is you want to fade the assholes, basically, is what, you, is what you've said in the book. So what trade has the most assholes in it right now? I would say there are too many assholes in short treasuries. Do you know this guy on Twitter, Holger Shapitz? I'm sure you've seen this guy. Probably he, if I saw his picture. I'm not really sure what his job is, but basically he posts charts of stuff. He's sort of a click whore. He posts charts of stuff <laughs> when they're at extreme levels. And I should find the one he just put about bonds. He gets lots of engagement, lots of clicks. And usually when something is at an extreme level, it's going to get lots of engagement, lots of clicks. That's really what journalism is about, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why journalism is so easy to fade because the people at The Economist who do The Economist cover, they're not trying to be predictive. They're not trying to predict the future. They're reporting on what's hot now, what cover is going to get the most attention, what cover is going to get people to pick up an issue of The Economist and read it. So usually they're coinciding indicators. They're telling you about like what's the most extreme trend that's happening right now. And that's the point which it fades. That's why the economist covers always work. Mm. Yeah, it kind of makes it makes sense to me that the treasuries would probably be the thing that works. It seems like people are just like, why would anyone ever own long duration treasuries? And often they're the best performing asset when you have like a major recession or it just seems to me like that if we had a major recession and the Fed went back to ZERP, that would probably annihilate the most people, which is what markets tend to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I totally agree with you there. So so far, no worries. So that's your upcoming book, yep. How to Live a Stress-Free Financial Life. What are some of the key lessons of that book? Well, this is a different model of personal finance book. I think most personal finance books tell you how to get the most money with mm -hmm. the assumption that getting the most money will make you happy. But a lot of times, getting the most money does not make you happy. It actually increases your stress. So just for example, Dave Ramsey, who has pretty good advice about debt, not great advice, but he tells people to avoid debt, which is mm -hmm. a good thing. But his investment advice, this is literally his investment advice. He says, you should put all your money in aggressive growth mutual funds, mm -hmm. aggressive growth. Yeah. And he says, why? Because historically they have returned the most and they will return the most in the future. I'm like, okay. You can do that, but you are going to experience breathtaking volatility. You're going to experience huge drawdowns. And sure, if you stay invested over the court, now, assuming that the factors don't change and value doesn't outperform and taking into account all these assumptions, but assuming that you are right and these mutual funds return the most, you will experience a great deal of stress in your investing career. So the goal is to structure your investments in such a way that not only maximizes returns, but minimizes risk. And as it turns out, you don't have to trade off a lot in the way of returns to dramatically reduce your risk. Right. 
He also tends to recommend high-fee, actively managed funds. He also doesn't get into specifics about what funds to buy because he wants to direct you to his SmartVestor Pro yep. service. I agree with you. The first few baby steps are perfect. Get out of debt aggressively, build up your emergency fund, and then yep. start investing. And then you should probably move on to someone else's investment. So I know in the book, you talk about the awesome portfolio is what you call it, like an asset allocation. What is that awesome portfolio? So it's 20% stocks, bonds, cash, gold, and real estate, equal proportions. So real estate it could be equity in your house. If you're renting, if you have an apartment or something, you would just invest in REITs, like a re-ETF. Gold is not gold miners, but spot gold. Stocks could be a total market index fund. Bonds could be the ag or some total bond market index fund. And cash is basically just money market funds or T-bills. And the interesting thing about this portfolio is that over the last 51 or two years, it has returned 8.4% with half the volatility of an 80-20 portfolio. And also the max drawdown of this portfolio is 10.5% which happened to be last year during in the rising rate environment. So if you think about this, you can have the S&P 500, which returns nine something a year, which has a max drawdown of 57% during the financial crisis. Or you can have the awesome portfolio, which returns 1% less with a max drawdown of 10%. What would you choose? Right. I mean, it's obvious, right? And look, people are just totally focused on returns at the expense of volatility. And the reason volatility is important is because the purpose of volatility is to people make stupid decisions. The reason you wanna immunize volatility is because people have emotions. And if you take a 20, 30, 40% drawdown, you're going to panic and sell, and then you're going to stop compounding. This happens all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm pretty much aligned with that. So I have my asset allocation strategy where I do something similar, like I own a mix of stocks, treasuries, gold, real estate. So yeah, I totally agree with you. And I agree that everybody just seeks the maximum possible return and it doesn't work. Like if you look at the average investor returns, like what investors actually get, it's something like 1%. They underperform the CPI because they're always getting in at tops and panic selling yep. at bottoms. And like, if you just had a smoother ride, I think most people would just be way better off. And Vanguard even acknowledged this. Like Vanguard had a paper years ago where they talked about this thing called advisor alpha. And what they acknowledged was their own investors don't achieve these returns that are in their funds. And it's because they actively trade them, right? So what they found was they did a study and they said with the addition of behavioral coaching and advisor that their returns actually went up by 3%, right? Mm -hmm. So they acknowledge that people do stupid stuff and actively trade their funds. And like you said, they return less than CPI. So that sounds like a very sound strategy. And it reminds me of Harry Brown's permanent portfolio, which is... Yeah, it's, it's similar to the permanent portfolio, but it adds real estate. The nice thing about real estate is that it's a hard asset. It gives you exposure to inflation. So if you're in an inflationary environment, it should do well. We back-tested the awesome portfolio with the permanent portfolio. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but the awesome portfolio had better characteristics. So yeah, it makes sense. I mean, permanent portfolio is flawed. And yeah, I agree that you can have some tilts there that make it a lot better. But I think what's good about it is basically the kind of framework he builds there where here's some yep. uncorrelated assets that can help you out over the long run. Yeah. 
So how do you feel about gold? So gold is kind of like, whenever I talk to people about gold, they're either like kind of a wacko gold bug, or they're like, why would you ever own shiny yellow rocks? I kind of think it serves a purpose in a portfolio. It sounds like you're probably in agreement with that. Well, gold is Dennis Rodman. Okay, <laughs> let me explain this. Gold is Dennis <laughs> okay. Rodman. So Dennis Rodman is in the Basketball Hall of Fame. He only scored four points a game, six points a game, something like that. And there was a lot of discussion about whether he should be in the Hall of Fame because he didn't score. If you had a basketball team full of Dennis Rodmans, like you would lose all the time, right? Because Dennis Rodman was really good at rebounding and passing, but he was terrible at scoring. But if you mm -hmm. take Dennis Rodman and you add him to a team with four guys who can score, then that team becomes a lot better. So that's really what's so great about gold. It's not so much that gold in and of itself, like if you just had a portfolio of just gold, you would mm -hmm. be very disappointed. But if you take gold and you add it to a portfolio of stocks and bonds and cash and real estate, it gets a lot better. So it has these risk reducing properties that no other asset has because it's really not correlated to anything. I mean, sometimes it's correlated to risk. Sometimes it's correlated to bonds. But over time, it's really not correlated to anything and it reduces the portfolio risk. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with you there. It's interesting because one of the things I tested to show people kind of the utility of gold was this crazy portfolio where you've got 50% stocks, 50% gold. And what I found was when you back test it back to the 70s, it returns more than stocks or gold through the annual rebalancing process, yeah, yeah. which blew my mind when I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that's fascinating about when you mix these together, you would assume that like the Kager of the portfolio is just the average of all the assets in the portfolio, but it's usually more than the sum of its parts with, with less drawdown. It's a pretty yep. amazing effect that yep. happens there. So that's cool. So in addition to the awesome portfolio, what are some other tips that can help someone live a stress-free financial life? So what I talk about in the book is, I don't want to give away the whole book, but yeah, I basically yeah. say there's two sources of financial stress. And one of them is risk, which we just talked about. Mm -hmm. And the other one is debt. Those are the only two sources of financial stress. A lot of people say, well, if you don't have any money, then that's a source of financial stress. And I'm like, absolutely not. There are people that don't have any money that pay their bills and don't have any debt and they don't have any exposure to stocks and they're perfectly happy. Mm -hmm. They're happy people. And on the other end, you have the richest guy in the world, Elon Musk, who bought Twitter using Tesla as collateral and he almost got a margin call and he almost went tits up. The richest guy in the world, like he massively increased his financial stress. Yeah. So the goal is not to be Elon Musk, right? <laughs> if you pursue this path, you're not going to be Elon Musk, but that's okay. That's a good thing. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, that's a good thing. So I kind of go through different kinds of debt, credit cards, mortgages, stuff like that. And I get into details about how to manage these things in order to minimize your stress. So it requires you at times to do things that don't make economic sense, right? So if you go back a couple of years ago before interest rates went up, let's say you have a 3% mortgage and you can invest in the stock market and make 8% and you have a couple hundred thousand in cash and you're like, okay, I can either pay down my mortgage or invest in the stock market. I can pay down my mortgage and make a certain 3% or I can invest in the stock market and make an uncertain 8%. Now, when I talk to Wall Street guys about this, they all say the same thing. They're like, you're nuts if you pay down your mortgage. Like, you should invest <laughs> in the stock market. It's basically an arbitrage. And I'm like, look, 
that 8% return is uncertain. At times you will make more, at times you will make less, sometimes you lose money. And if you lose money, then you will have debt and losses and your stress will go up. And I talk about sort of the value of reducing your debt, even if you have the opportunity to make more in order to reduce your financial stress. So I'm living in a house right now that I've lived in since 2015. I took out a mortgage in 2015 and I had it completely paid off in 2018. Right. And the happiness that I've experienced from having my house paid off, not making that payment every month and owning it free and clear has been fantastic. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think that having high fixed costs is a tremendous source of stress and anything you can do to reduce the fixed costs in your life. Dramatically, like if work is going poorly, you can kind of care a little bit less about it. You don't have to get freaked out. Like, yeah. oh my God, what if I lose my job and I lose everything? You can say like, ah, eh, whatever. I can, <laughs> I could find something else and supplement this for a while. I think that's the right way to live. And something Dave Ramsey was right about. He just says you pay off your mortgage, you reduce a lot of the stress in your life. Yeah, I mean, Dave Ramsey is not to get too much into Dave Ramsey, but. There's religious overtones to what he says. And with regards to that, I say a lot of the same things that he does, but I guess my book is the secular book. You know, (laughs) a lot of people are super turned off by that kind of stuff. And he has an audience in certain parts of the countries. He does marketing in churches. And that is not my intention. So I'm with you. I think he gives some good advice and some bad advice. I agree. It doesn't necessarily have to be wrapped up in the religious element. So yeah, that's cool. So let's talk about Those Bastards. So like I said, I love this book. A lot of great, cool essays and ideas. I thought one of the best quotes that you had in the book was, self-esteem is something we experience when we do esteemable acts. So why is that the case? Why is that the case? I'm not really sure why that's the case, but it is the case. But it is the case. Yeah. So I'm not even talking about something like altruistic. I'm not talking about like helping an old lady across the street. That's like Mm -hmm. usually the first people think of. But if you do something or accomplish something, like I write short stories and I'm going to be publishing a short story collection, right? So when I finish a short story and it's good, I feel good about myself. It's an accomplishment. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I want to share it with other people. If you donate a bunch of money to your high school, that is an esteemable act. You feel good about yourself. If you're sneaking around getting hookers and stuff like that, (laughs) I call it the sneaky scumbag phenomenon. Like if you're doing like (laughs) sneaky scumbag things that you know you shouldn't be doing then you're going to feel bad about yourself. So I don't really ever want to feel bad about myself. I want to do esteemable acts. And that's my source of self-esteem. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I know that whenever I'm like kind of on the ball and I'm like doing everything I'm supposed to be doing, I'm working out, I'm doing great at work. I'm contributing to charity. I feel great about myself. So I think that's really good advice to having a good life. And so many people are like, I want more self-esteem, but I feel it's not just a magic thing where you just feel better about yourself. You have to work for it. You have to work for it. And a lot of people don't have self-esteem and they're unhappy and they can't locate the source of their unhappiness. They don't really know where it's coming from. So even something as simple as going to work and putting in a good, honest day's work and coming home and saying, look, I accomplished something today. Like that's even that in and of itself is an esteemable act. Like if you go to work and you're dogging it and you're lazy and you try to do the minimum possible, like you're not going to feel good about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing you talked about 
was why is finance depraved? So you said you heard this from Nassim Taleb. You immediately rejected it and then kind of came back to it that finance is depraved. So why is finance depraved? I'm trying to think of what I said about this. I think one of the things I talked about in that essay was the Allman Brothers Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) in Fish and Grateful Dead and stuff like that. Like Wall Street kind of has this culture, which is an anti-intellectual, anti-art culture. Everybody listens to Fish, Allman Brothers, and Grateful Dead. You have hedge funds that buy art and they hang in their offices and they have no idea how to analyze it. They have no idea what it means. There is a world outside of finance. And what I find is that finance people are usually trapped in this world. They can't see outside of it as to like what's going on around them. There's like so much beauty around them and they don't see it. In finance, markets are many things. Markets are a great way to allocate resources and fund companies and grow the economy, but they're ugly. It's ugliness on a daily basis. Just the act of trading is an ugly act because in the micro term, like if we're doing a trade, if I buy and you sell and it moves against you, I win and you lost. So in the long term, we can both win, which is one of the magic of markets. But in the short term, you have this ugliness. So I traded for Lehman Brothers for seven years, and I can tell you that there is no enlightenment. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I was very good at my job. And what I would tell people is that I was like a snail cleaning the fish tank of the market. I was a market maker. I provided liquidity at a price. And basically, I was getting paid small amounts of money to provide this liquidity. And it was a very niche, specialized job. And if I had done an entire career of 20 or 25 years of making markets and ETFs, how would I feel about myself? I don't think it would be very fulfilling. Yeah, it is kind of like when you get down to it, there's really no social value to it. It's almost like you're betting on horses at the track. Like horse handicapper probably delivers as much value to society as like someone who trades stocks. I mean, it's a fun thing to do. I like I like it, but it doesn't really provide a ton of value to society. Well, I think it provides a lot of value to society, but in the aggregate. I in guess. the aggregate. Yeah. But what you find in finance is that you have people, even on Twitter, I'm sure you've seen people like this on Twitter. They tweet about finance and nothing else. Yeah. Like absolutely nothing else. They have like no other interests. It's pretty boring. You know what I mean? I tweet about all sorts of stuff and I get like no engagement on the non-finance stuff. Which is fine. Yeah, but it's stuff that interests me. I think if you're just in that bubble and all you're talking, plus not only that, but if you kind of expand beyond finance, it can help you in finance. (laughs) Like if you have a broader perspective, that's something Charlie Munger talks a lot about having some exposure to some other disciplines and fields so you can apply that. And just for the sake of enjoying it, not just to apply it to like a trade or something. So another thing you talk about related to finance in the book was that it's more art than science. So you talked about how everybody is always trying to turn finance into a science and it's not. So do you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, this is something I feel really strongly about. So basically with my newsletter, The Daily Dirt Net, what I do is I focus on the qualitative side of finance, not the quantitative side. Right. And I truly believe this is why I hate the CFA program. I don't know if you're a CFA. Sorry. No, I'm not. But it was um, too much work and I didn't see the payoff. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So the CFA is an attempt to quantify everything. 
Mm-hmm. And if you do this dividend discount value, then you arrive at the value of the stock. And if it's undervalued, then you buy it. And if it's overvalued, then you sell it. Like it doesn't work that way. The market is made up of human beings with emotions. And the amazing thing about that is that these behaviors, these emotions are constant throughout time. The same now as they were in the panic of 07 in the Dutch tulip mania. And it's absolutely the same. If you do want to get quantitative about it, you can read Kahneman and Tversky. You can read like Richard Thaler, like all this behavioral finance stuff. People behave in predictable ways. So that's what I try to study. And it's not a science. It's an art. It absolutely is an art when you look at it that way. Yeah. And you can see that all the time. You can see these animal spirits in different trades. You can see people getting so euphoric, so depressed about things. When you take a step back and think about it, I agree with you. It is pretty much the same. Was there really any difference between like the dot-com mania and what we just saw in crypto? Not really. It's just people getting pumped up about something and then getting euphoric and then getting depressed. And and even if you're systematizing everything, like people are moving towards ETFs and quantitative vehicles or systematic vehicles or whatever, the money still belongs to human beings and human beings do crazy stuff. So... I think that's what it all boils down to. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you there. So another thing we talked about a lot about in the book was politics. So did I? Yeah, you talked about how the country has become more extreme. People are getting more fired up about politics. Basically, you made the comparison to the 1996 election. You said we were way better off when we had low voter participation rates in elections like Clinton Dole 96. No one cared and we were better off. (laughs) So you want to talk a little bit about that? I feel strongly about that. So the turnout in 1996 was 46%, Mm -hmm. which was the lowest. I don't know if it was the lowest in history, but it was the lowest in recent history. And the turnout in 2020 was 70%. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people look at this and they're like, oh, this is great. We have civic engagement. People are participating in politics. And I'm like, yeah, they're participating because they're fighting for their lives. Like, this is actually not a good thing. When people were disengaged with politics, when it didn't matter, like that is actually. And by the way, 1996 was a pretty good time in history. You know, yeah. the late 90s, like that was, I would go back there in a second. I think that essay was in defense of centrism, maybe. Yeah, you talked about how the other aspect of it was you talked about how extremists are assholes. <laughs> like on the left and the right. <laughs> on like both you, sides, yeah. Yeah, like you compared Proud Boys to like a friend of yours who walked around with like a hammer and sickle t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, gosh. No, I think that, I don't want to get too much into this. It was funny because back in the 90s, Congress was very clubby. Even if you ask congressmen about this, They say, we used to be friends, Democrats, Republicans. We weren't on the same team. You know, we were adversaries, but we used to be at least be cordial with each other and be friendly. And now in Congress, like both sides hate each other. And pretty much every vote is on a party line vote. And if you go back to the 90s, you had lots of crossover between the parties and lots of bipartisan things going on. And back then, people are like, what is the point of political parties? Because everybody just votes the same way on everything anyway. That Mm -hmm. was a good thing. What we have today is not better. Yeah, it definitely seems like nothing gets done unless one party is in total. Like if you look back the last 20 years, the only major pieces of legislation you've had, the healthcare bill, the Trump tax cuts, it's when one party controls everything. And it didn't always used to be like we used to be able to pass major legislation on a bipartisan basis. And that doesn't happen anymore. 
And you're right about the how they used to get along. Like I was listening to Bill Maher the other day, and he was talking about how back in the 90s, he was backstage with Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton, and they got along. He like took a step back and was like, oh, wow, the way you act in public is kind of a facade. You guys are basically getting along and compromising on things behind the scenes. And yeah. that's not happening today. <laughs> Bill Maher is great, by the way. I'm a big fan of his. He's terrific. So I disagree with him on a bunch of stuff, but he's thoughtful. And I'd love to be on his show. I would love it. Can you get me on his show? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I listen to his show. His show is Club Random. I listen to it a lot. It's pretty cool. He has a lot of good guests on. I'm the same. I don't agree with him about everything, but he always has pretty insightful commentary. And he's always willing to kind of just say what he thinks, and he doesn't really hold anything back. So I respect yeah. that about him. Yeah, totally. So another thing you talked about in the book that I thought was interesting was standardized tests. So there's this big movement against standardized tests for a bunch of reasons. But you argued standardized tests are a good thing. They're actually an equalizer. They help get people out of poverty. Why are standardized tests a good thing? Well, what's interesting is that people are opposed to standardized tests because there are disparities in performance among race and social class and stuff like that. But the interesting thing is that there's more disparities in performance with the other ways you would evaluate kids going to college. For example, if you have two families and one is poor and one is rich, the rich family will pay for test prep and the poor mm -hmm. family cannot, right? So the student from the rich family will do better on the standardized test, okay? But if you have a really, really smart kid from a poor family, they will still do really well and get into a good school. It's a test. But the differences on essays and recommendations and stuff like that are actually more pronounced. We're actually making it worse by eliminating standardized tests. I say this from somebody who was pretty good at standardized tests. I maybe didn't know the right answer, but I could pick it out of a lineup. And, <laughs> you know, I use that to great. Well, advantage. that's a skill. And I came from a poor family. So I got accepted to some pretty good schools on the basis of standardized tests. And if I had to do it on the basis of essays, I wasn't going to get any help with that. I would be totally on my own. So, yeah. And the other aspect to it, too, is like, now what do you have to do to get into a college? OK, you have to be big on the extracurricular activities. You have to get the high GPA and the AP classes and everything. And that actually penalizes, I think, the poor kids more. Some rich kid can do like some weird sport fencing or something and get, get into Harvard. And if you're a normal middle class person, it's not something you're ever going to get into. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned fencing because that gets into my play the tuba essay. <laughs> Yeah, you did. Yeah, you said play the tuba, which is the do the difficult, expensive thing. Like you had a band teacher and he limited certain instruments based on because everybody was doing like the cheap instruments, basically. Yep. Yeah. So why don't you talk about that advice of play the tuba? Yeah. So in school, like in fourth grade, when kids want to learn how to play an instrument, the parents are usually like, well, flute is 400 bucks and a clarinet is 400 bucks and a trumpet is 400 bucks. So we'll do that. A tuba is like 4,000 bucks. So we're not going to pay for a tuba. So inevitably, when you get to high school, you have a bunch of flutes and clarinets and saxophones and trumpets in the band. It sounds like a kazoo band. There's no low brat because the kids can't afford to get a tuba. If you make that investment and you get a tuba at a young age and you get really good at it, colleges are always looking for tuba players, always, because there are none. So if you're a competent tuba player, you can get a scholarship to go to all kinds of different colleges. 
So that $3,000 investment turns into $100,000 in terms of getting into a college Mm. and getting scholarships. But that principle kind of applies more broadly to a whole bunch of different stuff. Really, if you want to make money, you shouldn't do the thing that everybody else is doing. Wall Street's a pretty good example. A lot of people think you can get rich working on Wall Street. Well, okay. The average person on Wall Street makes three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year. They're doing well. They're also living in a high cost of living area with lots of taxes and stuff like that. So maybe they're not doing as well. There are some people that go on to make several million dollars a year, but that's pretty rare. But it's a food fight to get a job that makes $300,000 a year where you say, okay, I'm going to do something maybe less prestigious, but I'm going to be an entrepreneur and I'm going to open a bar or I'm going to start this manufacturing company or I'm going to do this. The upside is actually much, much greater by doing something that nobody else is doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're competing with a much higher talent pool, too. If you're going to Wall Street, you're competing against people that are way out there in the the intelligence curve and, and they're hard to compete with. So you might as well do something that's a little less competitive. Yeah. Yeah. So another thing in the book was you talked about how you should write down. I thought this was great. You should write down all the things that you're currently worried about and then revisit it later. So why is that a great exercise? I think this was called the cure for anxiety. So. I think most people have anxiety of some kind. Mine kind of comes and goes. Sometimes it's bad, sometimes it's not. But a lot of times what I do is if I have fear or anxiety about something, I write it down and I'll write it down on my phone, like in the notes section. So what happens is when I write it down, I already feel a little bit better. There's something sort of cathartic about just putting it on the phone, like and you see it It doesn't seem as bad and it makes you feel a little bit better. So then over the course of three, six, nine months, you have more anxiety and you write it down and you write it down. And then after a year, you go and look at your phone and you have this whole list of things that you had anxiety about and none of it ever came true. None of it ever came true. So you can look back and say, oh my God, I had fear about that. Like, I can't believe I had fear. That's almost a joke. And this never happened and this never happened. And what you start to see is that over time, your batting average on the things that you have fear about is zero. Like all the things that you have fear and anxiety about never happen, never happen. And it's not to say that bad things don't happen, but it's never the things that you're worried about. It's something totally random that happens and you have no control over it whatsoever. So I do this all the time. Yeah. And I think it's a great exercise. And I know there was similar advice in a book I read called uh, Feeling Good, which was a psychology book. And I noticed that when I wrote these things down, It sounded ridiculous. Once I said it out loud and I stopped talking about it in my head, I'm like, this is totally crazy. Why am I even worried about this? The other thing you talked about was how you would make bets with your wife about these bad things. So how did that, (laughs) how did that help? (laughs) So like a dumb example, I'd be like, I screwed something up. I'm going to jail. And my wife is like, you're not going to jail. That's stupid. And I'm like, I am definitely (laughs) going to jail. I say to my wife, I will bet you $3,000 that I'm going to jail by a certain date. She's like, okay, I'll take the other side of that bet. And three months goes by and I'm not in jail. And then I have to pay her $3,000, which (laughs) hurts. I have to stick to those bets. And I have paid her over the years, tens of thousands of dollars. <laughs> like <laughs> she has made so much money off of me. She's rational. She can kind of sit back and like, she's like, okay, you're worrying about nothing. So. Yeah, that's awesome. So another thing I thought that was pretty interesting, you talked about how nothing happens in your apartment. So. Luck will never find you in your apartment. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think that's changed a little bit these days because I think you can do some things in your apartment like YouTube and stuff like that where mm-hmm. you can, where you can succeed. But for the most part, you know, one of the examples I talked about in that essay was Madonna, right? So Madonna moved to New York City when she was 18 years old, and this was her plan, right? Her plan was to just walk around until somebody noticed her, mm-hmm. right? So she's 18 years old, and she wears, like, lingerie or whatever Madonna wears. Like, she dresses all sexy, mm-hmm. and she's walking around, and she just walked around the city for days until somebody said, you look like a star. <laughs> And that's literally where, like, she had to get outside of her apartment to do this. A lot of people are like, gosh, I wish I had a job on Wall Street. Well, it's funny because when I was at Lehman, there were these young kids who would get in the lobby of the Lehman building and they would hand out resumes just to anybody walking by. And I got one of these resumes and it wasn't really like a great resume, but I had to sort of like tip my cap at the kid because that's not a great idea, but it's better than sitting in your apartment and wishing you had a job. If you want something, you have to go out and get it. I also talk about the fact that whenever you get large groups of people together, you have opportunities like conferences and stuff like that. If I have an opportunity to go to a conference, I always go to the conference. Always good things happening. Like You got to get out there. You got to mix it up. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's good advice. So another thing you talked about was, this was a quote, you said, stand-up comedians are the only truth tellers remaining. So why are stand-up comedians the only truth tellers <laughs> left? I don't remember the context. I would like to be a stand-up comedian. Like I aspire to do that. I actually wrote out like a whole comedy routine one time, but I'm too chicken. I'm too afraid to do it. So. <laughs> you go to an open mic night or something. And I, know, I know. I know. Your know, book made me is, laugh. I mean, I think you could probably do it. You got the, enough. The problem is, is that in Myrtle Beach, there's one comedy club and it's a family friendly comedy club. Mm-hmm. And my oh. routine is so filthy. <laughs> Literally, I would have to drive to Charlotte or Atlanta to do this. And like for me to get in the car and drive six hours, I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if it's worth it. So. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. So the other thing I thought you talked about that was pretty interesting was people shouldn't wear cargo shorts. So why shouldn't people wear cargo shorts? White men can't dress. Well, the cargo (laughs) shorts are really a metaphor for just basically dressing like shit. Right. And I don't know if you're releasing the video to this podcast, but we're looking at each other right now. I'm just I'm wearing a white T-shirt. I get dressed up all the time. Like Mm -hmm. if I'm going to take out my trash, I put on a jacket. I am not seen outside my house with, not in the summer, but like when it's cooler, like I wear a jacket wherever I go. Absolutely. Mm. I don't wear suits anymore. I don't wear button down shirts or ties, but I wear like t-shirts with jackets and I'm always wearing a jacket. It was funny. Like the genesis of that piece was I went to Vegas and I was at the win and I was looking at these guys and there's a couple of guys playing $500 a hand blackjack. And they're wearing cargo shorts and flip-flops and like ratty t-shirts. I'm like, okay, you obviously have some money. You're playing $500 hand blackjack. Have some self-respect. Put on some pants. This is South Carolina. It gets hot in the summer. I generally don't wear shorts in the summer. I don't. Mm -hmm. I still wear pants. Shorts are only for little kids at the beach. Call me old-fashioned, but I think people should dress up. We talk about like how people used to dress up to go on planes. I still dress up to go on plane. Nowadays, you get on a plane and 60% of the people are wearing sweatpants. 
you know yeah you sound like sebastian maniscalco i don't know if you ever heard his comedy yeah. he talks about that he's like did you just roll out of bed <laughs> what are you doing here <laughs> people are at the airport in their pajamas like what the hell is going on <laughs> But yeah, it does seem like there was a certain decor back in the day that has been completely lost. And then back in the day, you look at Vegas, pictures of Vegas, and everybody's in a suit and tie. And it looks yeah. like a much more respectable environment. Yeah. So, and keep in mind, when I was at Lehman, I had to wear a suit. Mm -hmm. and I didn't really like wearing a suit. I did not get expensive suits. I got really cheap suits. And, but the thing that used to piss me off every day, I'd have a tie and it was like a Brooks Brothers tie. It wasn't like an expensive tie or anything, but I would be eating lunch at my desk and just be like, dush. And I would get like food on my tie. Mm -hmm. I'm like, God damn it. And like, <laughs> now I got to get the tie dry cleaned. I used to get so mad, but yeah, no, I think people should dress up more. I really do. Yeah. And I was thinking about that too, because this weekend I was just reading Going Infinite about Sam Bankman fried Oh, did you read that? Yeah, I'm like halfway through it. And I kept thinking about that. I kept thinking about what you said about the cargo shorts, because here's a guy walking around in ratty t-shirts and cargo shorts, <laughs> you know, sneakers. And I'm like, huh, maybe there's something to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the signs were there. The signs were there. <laughs> it's a pretty good book. I'd recommend it. I think I disagree with Lewis's conclusions. I actually, I tweeted it out. I think he's a psychopath. Like, reading about the way he thinks he out talks about how he has no emotions and then all through the book he basically has like no empathy for other human beings so what sbf yeah and i think and lewis is kind of like oh what a goofy nerd he doesn't conform to conventions but i'm like this guy sounds like he is a total psycho like if he wasn't a genius he'd probably be chopping people up or something <laughs> 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 then there's another one I have to read, A Number Go Up. That one looks pretty good about Yeah, the him. Zeke Faux book. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. check that one out next. Hopefully that's a little bit better. But yeah, I, Michael Lewis, for some reason he was, I don't know, seduced by this guy or something. I don't understand why. He seems like he's okay with him. Pretty strange. So another thing you wrote in, in the book that I thought was pretty interesting was you said Twitter is more valuable than Bloomberg. And if you had a choice between giving up your Bloomberg terminal and Twitter, you would pick Twitter. So why is Twitter such a valuable resource? I, even, even today, like if I'm in a restaurant or something like, oh, let me check the markets. I don't go to the Bloomberg app. I go to Twitter. Mm. I go to Twitter to see how the market is doing because I don't necessarily, I mean, yes, I want to see the price of things. But I want to see how people feel about the price of things. Mm. That's much more important. So I pay 30000 a year for Bloomberg or whatever. If I had to give up one or the other, I could just trade off of Twitter for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, there's something to that. Like, So I bought Facebook like a year ago, and I bought it after the first drop. And on Twitter, everybody was like, this is a good buying opportunity. And everybody was commenting like, oh, what a good trade you did, and blah, blah, blah. And then it just kept plummeting. And then by December, everybody's like, you're an idiot for owning this, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I'm like, I should have just faded Twitter. Like I should... <laughs> like if it drops and everybody says it's a good buying opportunity, probably you should wait a little bit more. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. I totally agree with you there. So another thing you talked about was anger. You said anger is a very unproductive emotion. So why is anger an unproductive emotion? It's kind of hard to explain. I value my peace and mm -hmm. serenity and anger disturbs my peace. So, and the other thing about if you get angry at somebody and you start yelling or whatever, afterwards you feel terrible yeah like you have like this hangover i called an emotional hangover and you feel terrible for days then you have to go apologize or whatever mm -hmm. this is coming from somebody i used to be like the most angry guy in the world 
I am probably not recognizable to the people I work with at Lehman. I don't get angry anymore. I just don't. I refuse to. I might get annoyed from time to time, just get like mildly annoyed at people, but it disturbs my peace. I can't deal with it. So how did you do that? How did you stop you know, doing that? How did you stop getting angry? Basically, if I felt myself getting angry, I would have to pause. The key word is pause. And a lot of this comes down to email in particular, because I have a bunch of subscribers to my newsletter and occasionally they try to provoke me. And mm -hmm. if I get an email, I don't have to respond to it within five seconds. I can say, okay, I can deal with that later. And a lot of times if I don't respond to the email and I sleep on it, the next day I can have a much more rational response. You know what I mean? So occasionally I screw up. And if every time I send an email in anger, I always regret it. I mm -hmm. always regret it. I've never not regretted it. I always regret it. I just can't do it. So I've been there too. Anytime I say something in anger, I never think about it a week later and be like, oh, that was a wonderful thing to say. <laughs> like, it's, <laughs> it's always a mistake, no matter what it is. <laughs> Same thing with emails. I agree. What I often do is I'll write the angry response like draft draft, save it, go for a walk. And then after the walk, I'm like, okay, I can delete that. That was so stupid. <laughs> Glad I didn't send that one. <laughs> it's funny, like a couple months ago, I got an angry email from one of my subscribers and he replied back a couple minutes later. He's like, sorry, I put that one in the drafts folder. I wasn't going to send it, but I actually hit accidentally hit send. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's true. And there's something about with email and Twitter, there's something about the digital element of it where you're not like looking at the person and saying these terrible things yeah. where I think people get much nastier in, in those situations. Yeah. Okay. So before we wrap up, is there anything you'd like to add? I don't know. I just want to pitch a bunch of stuff to sell stuff. So if that's okay. Uh, okay, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you got to order the new book, No Worries, How to Live a Stress-Free Financial Life. That's a small financial commitment. It costs 27 bucks. That book, it will revolutionize the way you think about money. It's going to be the best personal finance book ever written. I have high hopes for it. I think it's going to sell millions of copies. I think it's going to be huge. So awesome. definitely want to be a part of that. If you want to subscribe to the Daily Dirt Nap, go to dailydirtnap.com. There's a subscribe button there. If you mention the podcast, I will give you a giant discount, humongous discount. 50% discount on the newsletter if you mention the podcast. So that's really if you're a market junkie, you want to read my thoughts daily on the market. Like I said, I focus more on the qualitative side than the quantitative side. The writing is really, really good in the newsletter. So it's enjoyable to read. So yeah, I guess that's it. Cool. Thank you so much for coming on. I really, really enjoyed this. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for reaching out. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.